Friends, as I mentioned last week, we're going to have a brief series of messages on Advent, an Advent series. And uh, the Christmas story, we're so familiar with it. We celebrate it and remember it this time of year. And I'm not claiming to bring anything new or unique to the story, but just to remind you in the midst of it all of the lessons that it teaches of God's goodness and his great love for the world, for he so loved the world that he gave us his son. As I mentioned, I love Christmas, that it falls in the middle of winter during the darkest time of year. Soon uh, it'll be the shortest day of the year in just a few weeks. Uh, It can be so dark. Especially after time change, we notice how quickly it gets dark in the evening, how late the sun comes up in the morning. It's dark so much longer than it is light. And because of that, it's always been one of my favorite parts of the the way the culture we live in celebrates Christmas, whether they are uh, believing or not celebrating the cultural Christmas with all of its trappings. An important part of that is light. Just as we've lit the first of the Advent candles today, and our theme today was light, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. That beautiful prophecy to the people in Galilee, which someday would see Jesus, the light of the world, in his ministry in Galilee, well, Christmas is a story of light, so it's appropriate that in the dark time of year, especially here in the Northern Hemisphere, we celebrate Christmas with beautiful lights. We call them Christmas lights. We put them on trees. We put them on our houses. We decorate so many things. The picture you see before you is one of those towns. This is actually a picture taken on a street in a city in Kentucky. But many of the cities have something very similar as they have a certain street where all of the people on that street decorate their houses full out. They go full out and decorate their houses. And then all the people in the town will drive down that street at night. And it's something similar to what we do at the Arboretum with the Forest of Lights. People love to see the area decorated. I remember years ago when we lived in Edmonton before uh, we took our first solo pastorate, uh, our kids were very young and we would put them in the car. It was a small car. We didn't have a minivan until we were in the ministry. We put them in the little car. It was a Mercury Lynx, like a little escort, a little bitty car. And we would drive in Edmonton to Candy Cane Lane. I don't know the name of the real name of that street, but in winter it's Candy Cane Lane. And we would go down that street so slow, bumper to bumper, and you'd enjoy it. And you'd turn around and go the other way. And you'd look at each house on each side of the street. It was beautiful. It kind of uh, speaks, for years I've always decorated my house at Christmas time. In Medicine Hat, my theme was candy canes. It was all red and white and icicles. And I moved to Troshu and our house was so differently shaped that my lights just wouldn't fit anything. So sadly, they were always, I was always uh, keeping them together with uh, tape and bailing wire. And so I, I kind of bundled them up and took them to the nuisance grounds. And that was the end of Christmas lights. But believe it or not, (laughs) Jerry Holler heard me bemoaning my fate that my lights didn't fit. So out of the blue, he gave me money to buy more Christmas lights. He says, buy some lights that fit your house now. And you know, Jerry's with the Lord in glory, but I think of him every Christmas that I risk my life on that steep pitch roof, putting those lights up there. And I always think, maybe this year I'll join Jerry in Christmas, you know, (laughs) because... 
And my wife says, we're going to do something different this year. We'll decorate down below. We'll buy light up deer like Dorothy and Elvin. Beautiful deer in the front yard. You don't have to go on the roof. Well, I said, mm, okay, good idea. I let her buy the deer and then I went up on the roof anyway. So I said, the deer like it. The deer like it when the whole house is decorated. It just, it's better that way. Christmas lights. Now, as we look at the series, that's going to be our theme throughout the Advent season, different lights in the story of Christmas. We see everything from God's glory shone around them. In the darkness of the, of the night, we see various kinds of light. And today's a little bit different because, because uh, as we look at our theme verse, which is found in John's cosmic telling of the Christmas story. Remember, John tells not the events of that birth of Jesus, but he tells the meaning, what happened as that baby was born, that God himself took flesh and became incarnated, that Jesus, the word of God, the active agent of the Trinity in creation, God spoke the universe into being. The Scripture tells us that it all came through God's Word, Jesus, the Word of God, as John calls Him. We read in John chapter 1, our theme verses, Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Has not overcome it. Darkness can't comprehend the light. And so it's appropriate that with our Advent candle reading, reminding us the prophecy of the people living in darkness have seen a great light. How would they understand it? If you lived in darkness your whole life and then saw light, perhaps you've seen those amazing, heartwarming videos of children and adults and others who have been profoundly deaf their whole lives. They receive a cochlear implant and then they hear the voice of their mother, a loved one for the first time. The expression on their face is comprehension that there's something called sound and they experience sound and voice for the first time. It's amazing. When I see the Christmas story, I see people living in darkness, hopeless, surprised and shocked and baffled by what God is doing as He shines His light into this dark world. Today's message, I've called it the light of understanding. Because understanding and light, in our language, they go together. There's so many, think about the metaphors for comprehension connected to light. And in Scripture, we see God helping people understand what He is doing through the prophetic word of His prophets from years gone by. Even the picture there, that's a metaphor for comprehension. The light came on. I understood it. The light bulb turned on and it all became clear. I understood Remember that old song? I remember it not just as the hymn, but I loved Hank Williams' version of it. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I was in darkness. I was blind. But then Jesus revealed Himself to me and I saw the light. I understood. I was a sinner in need of a Savior, but I saw the light. Somebody helps you understand something, you say, thank you for shedding some light on the subject. Or I see it now in a new light. 
you understand it differently. The light came on and it all made sense. I see what you're saying. See that? Even understanding, I see what you're saying. One of my favorites is suddenly it dawned on me. <laughs> the sun came up and I could see. You understand that? Light is understanding. It's comprehension. And Scripture wants you to understand what God was doing. One of the ways God does it is through His Word. His written Word, we are blessed to have the Bible, both the Old and New Covenants, the Old and New Testament for us. But for so many years of the salvation story and salvation history, they didn't have the whole Bible. They didn't have the written Word. But God would speak to them. He would send His spokespeople, His prophets to them. One of my favorite verses referring to prophets is found in Amos chapter 3. Prophet Amos has been foretelling God's judgment. See, prophets don't just predict the future. Sometimes God does through them, but they give the word of the Lord, His encouragement, His hope, His warning of judgment. Change your ways or this will happen. If they don't change the ways, it becomes predictive. In the midst of some great prophecies of judgment on Judah, Amos writes, Surely, verse 7 of chapter 3, surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. Why? Because God wants his people to understand what he's doing. God is communicating. Now, the communication of God is on God's initiative. We don't understand him of our own volition. God has revealed Himself to us. We can know something of God. We see His fingerprints in nature, the beauty, the power, the limitless extent of the universe. We know something of the Creator God from His creation. We call that natural revelation. But if God wants to put the caption to give meaning to what your eyes are seeing and give you understanding, He speaks to you through the prophets. There were speaking prophets and there were writing prophets. Isaiah was the first of the great writing prophets. He not only said, thus saith the Lord, but he also put it down on parchment. He also wrote the message because God wanted people to understand. He loves us. He wants to communicate what He is doing in His great work of salvation. From the book of Genesis on, from the fall of man to the end of time, God set His work of salvation in motion. The last few weeks we've been looking at a theme on such a great salvation, the work of atonement and so forth. And God communicates that. He wants us to know what He's doing at work. Well, let's briefly look at a few of the Christmas prophecies this morning as we uh, seek understanding, as God sheds light on the subject of Christmas. And we see how the people were prepared to understand Christmas when it happened. It came as a shock because they didn't expect these prophecies to be fulfilled in this way, but they did all the same. Let's look at the first of those the prophecy of the Messiah's birthplace. We sing it all the time. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Bethlehem. 
Bethlehem was one of a couple towns named Bethlehem in the, in the land of Israel at that time. There was one further up in the north, and there was one in the south. It was known as the area, the birthplace of, uh, of the tribe of Jesse, King David. That was his neighborhood. It was a small town. It was a, it was a journey, a day's walk from Jerusalem uh, Bethlehem now, unfortunately, is in what technically they call the West Bank. There's armed guards and walls and gates between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Bethlehem was known in the Old Testament as the place where the beloved wife of the patriarch, Rachel, died. And they mourned her there in her tomb. Rachel's tomb is a place still in Bethlehem, as I've shown pictures of it in the past, where people who uh, are having trouble conceiving and having children, those women go and pray at Rachel's tomb. Because Rachel prayed and waited so many years till God blessed her with children. Well, this was prophesied as a birthplace of the Messiah. Messiah meaning the anointed one, the promised coming king sent by God to deliver the people from their problems, to rescue them. God's rescuing king coming in glory, the Messiah, the anointed one. Well, the prophet we want to look at today is Micah. We're going to primarily see old Christmas prophecies from Micah and from Isaiah. Now, they're connected in my thinking always because they were contemporaries. That means they lived and ministered at the same time. Isaiah was more active in Jerusalem. He may have been connected. We know before he was a prophet, that was his second career. Earlier, he was a royal scribe working for King Uzziah. God called him into the ministry in the year that King Uzziah died. His job as a scribe at the royal court finished. And God gave him a new job as his prophet. At the same time, ministering more in the countryside to the people of Judah was Micah, also called to be a prophet. His prophecy, his book of prophecies are far shorter than the uh, 60 uh, chapters in Isaiah. We see Micah is kept among the minor prophets. His message isn't minor, though, and his prophecies, some of them are the most significant regarding the Messiah. But it's interesting, both of these men prophesying in the same situation, looked forward to, and God spoke of the birth of the Messiah. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we see people in hard times, needing hope. And so the Lord spoke through His prophet Micah to Bethlehem. He says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and that second part, is a, is a nickname of the city to differentiate it between the Bethlehem way up further north. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. It's a powerful prophecy, and it's unique in that it's difficult to translate into English, whose origins are from ancient times. Literally, that word means in Hebrew, his days are from eternity. This is difficult for the people to understand when Micah gives them this prophecy because the Messiah is being shown to be eternal. That name, that, that, that Hebrew word, olaum, means back into the distance of the past. You can't even see. It's beyond the horizon. You can't see when this Messiah began. 
And in the future, the same thing. It's beyond the vanishing point. You can't see from beginning to end, Alpha and Omega, it goes beyond what you understand. The Ancient of Days. This phrase is used for God. So here we see in the prophecy of a birthplace that the Messiah that would be born in Bethlehem, His origins are not human alone. They're not temporal like ours are. He's of Ancient of Days. He's an eternal Messiah. Now, I said it was hard times because both this situation and the prophecies of Isaiah concerning the oh, to, uh, to us a son is born are both in the same political crises. Judah and Israel have long since split apart. That's the northern and southern kingdom. They are rivals, not friendly rivals. As we see in Cameroon, the worst wars are civil wars. As those you are closest to, you take up arms against. The passions run high. The hatred runs deep. Israel and Judah were implacable enemies in so many ways. And now, another one of Judah, the southern kingdom, where Micah and Isaiah are prophets, another one of their great enemies, the nation of Syria, has signed a treaty with Judah and they want to band up and go against the big superpower in the north, the Assyrians. To do that, they want their flank covered, so they say, Judah, you have to join us. Judah, Israel, Syria will stand up to the Assyrians. And Judah says, we want no part of this. No, we don't want to, we want, because everybody that goes against those crazy Assyrians winds up destroyed. That's the situation these prophecies are given in. Because now, Syria and Ephraim, the northern kingdom Israel, are turning on the south. And who's the king? A man named Ahaz. His father was a pretty good king. There's far worse than King Uzziah. But he was proud and God struck him with leprosy. But Uzziah, the good king, had a wicked son, Ahaz, who has a good son, Hezekiah, who has a terrible wicked son, Manasseh. You see how it's, it's like a roller coaster with the kings of Judah. So Ahaz is a king, and these prophecies are being given to him during this time that help is on the way. God, you can trust Him. He hasn't forgotten us. He'll even give us a Messiah. But though this had initial meaning to the people during that so-called Syro-Ephraimatic crisis that the nation of Judah faced, that was the initial fulfillment. But the Bible tells us the ultimate fulfillment was Jesus. So we take this prophecy of Micah in Micah chapter 5, and we find the fulfillment in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2, the story of Jesus. Because when the Magi show up after the birth of Christ, and they want to know where the Messiah was to be born... Everybody knew where he was to be born. Bethlehem. Because we remember, starting a little earlier than what's on the screen, Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, when King Herod heard this, that the Magi were asking where the new king of the Jews was born, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judah, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will, become a, will come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people Israel. 
they conflate verse 4 back into that. So Herod hears where the Messiah is to be born. And we know how that turned out. The massacre of the innocents. And Jesus was only born in Bethlehem because God said it in the heart of a Roman emperor to count up his subjects so he could tax them better. <laughs> and Joseph and Mary from the family and tribe of Jesse and David, had to go back to their hometown, the hometown of their family, not their birthplace. They had never lived there. Amazing how God brought about His just ends. He prophesied it and He brings it about. Well, that was the prophecy of where the Messiah, the Ancient of Days, was to be born. The prophecy of the virgin birth in Isaiah is even more incredible. We find that, of course, in Isaiah chapter 7. Verse 10, we read about the sign of Emmanuel. Now, this is directly in that political crisis. Ahaz, the king, he feels cornered. What's he going to do? Do we join this, this group of nations and fight against Assyria? He's already decided what he's going to do. He says, no, I'm going to rat on Judah or Israel and Syria. I'm going to go behind their backs. I'm going to go right to the king of Assyria and put my cards on the table and say, hey, they want us to join against you and they're threatening us. You come and help us out. He's already done this. But God sends his prophet Isaiah to him. Isaiah shows up with his son, Shear Yeshub, which is a prophetic child. His name means a remnant shall survive, a remnant remains. And Isaiah gives Ahaz the chance to do the right thing. Don't put your trust in a pagan king. Put your trust in the God of Judah and Israel. The true God. So he shows up. And he offers help. Verse 10. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign. Whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. Through the prophet, God is saying, just trust me. Ask me for a sign. I'll show you and give you anything so you will trust me. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. He dressed it up in nice religious language. He'd already decided what he was doing. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call Him Emmanuel. Now, the prophecy continues giving a timeline that by the time this child born of a virgin is a certain age, those kings you're afraid of will both be dead. By the time he's old enough to know right from wrong or eat solid food, he gave a timeline on this miraculous child. Now, as we see it in its initial fulfillment, it was directly rooted to that political situation. That in the time it would take a virgin to get married, conceive, have a child, the child grows up, you could do the math. You could just do the math. Boop, 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 boop. And they're saying, hey, this is pretty quick. This is somewhere between four or five and bar mitzvah, 12, it's not that many years. These kings are going to be wiped out. God is promising something wonderful. But oh, he had something more in mind. This initial fulfillment 
did not use the prophecy up. That Alma, that young unmarried woman, we see ultimately it's Mary, a young unmarried woman. And she remains a virgin through the birth of Jesus. An incredible, miraculous, ultimate fulfillment of the virgin birth. Again, we turn back to Matthew. This time, the angel speaking to, to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. He's heard that Mary miraculously is pregnant. He knows he has nothing to do with it. And she's his betrothed. And so he's going to save her disgrace and punishment, divorce her quietly, and put her away. It says, but after he had considered this, in verse 20 of Matthew 1, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill ultimate fulfillment what the Lord had said through the prophet the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us because literally he was Emmanuel God with us an incredible fulfillment so the light could come on so we could understand what God was doing God at work in our midst. A little further, again from Isaiah, as we mentioned this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, that's the prophecy of the child would be born, the son given to us. It's really a prophecy of a divine ruler. We've already seen that he's of ancient of days. This child has no beginning and no end. His origins are eternity. And now we see clearly that this child given to us is special. Isaiah chapter 9, we'll look at just verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. A ruler from the line of David will rule on David's throne and his reign will never end. Not through his children, his reign will never end. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, he would be a divine ruler some scholars look at that and they say, well, the initial fulfillment probably referred to Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. And the time it took for Ahaz's wife, perhaps a young wife in the, in the court, to conceive, give birth to this godly future king, Hezekiah, and for him to begin to grow up, those kings in the north were destroyed. Well, some of those descriptive probably could refer to Ahaz, he, or Hezekiah rather. He was a godly king. He could have been a wonderful counselor. He could have been a prince of peace. Though we know his reign was marked by war because his dad running to the Assyrians for help. They reaped a bitter harvest from that. 
The Assyrians eventually came in and not only destroyed and took the northern kingdom, Israel, captive, they captured every city in Judah except, except Jerusalem. Hezekiah, as Sennacherib said at the time, the Assyrian emperor, is caged like a bird in, or is like a bird in a cage. He's trapped in Jerusalem. But Hezekiah could never fulfill the terms mighty God and everlasting Father. Those terms are exclusive only to God. And so the child to be given to us from ancient of days is God Himself in human form. The mysteries of the incarnation are open to us. He's a divine ruler. As the same angel Gabriel that spoke to Joseph in a dream spoke to Mary, they reference these exact prophecies. Luke chapter 1, But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. A direct fulfillment of the Isaiah chapter 9 prophecy. Jesus, our King of Kings, who reigns today, that's in fulfillment of this Christmas prophecy. God is doing all of this so we can understand who was born. And that Micah passage, it had so much in it, it wasn't even filled up. Because you remember when the scribes and chief priests spoke to King Herod? They mentioned that he would shepherd his people. That's directly from Micah as well. The prophecy of the shepherd Messiah. He would not only rule in the line of David, but like King David, he would be a shepherd. And he would shepherd his people. That's the final prophecy. The prophecy of the shepherd Messiah. And how Jesus fulfills that. Oh, I love Micah chapter 5 continues. We often end with Bethlehem. But if you go two verses further, it says of this child that he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. Beautiful description of Jesus, our good shepherd. Jesus, as we saw last week, who was our atonement, not only the shepherd, but the Lamb of God who sheds His blood to take away the sins of the world. Jesus, who alone can give us peace and make peace between a holy God and sinful mankind. He is our peace. Jesus, our shepherd. Jesus loved that phrase. He referred to Himself as a shepherd. He shepherded His people. John chapter 10, of course, is the chapter of the Good Shepherd. Jesus speaks of Himself as the gate where the sheep go in. And then He expands His metaphor and says, I'm the shepherd of the sheep. He says in John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the Good Shepherd. I know My sheep. My sheep know Me. Just as the Father knows Me and I know the Father, and I lay down My life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this pen. He's talking about you and I. The Gentiles that He came to save as well. 
I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is this, that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus, speaking of how through His death and resurrection, He, the Good Shepherd, will give us our peace. It all fits together. I've heard some incredible numbers as people spoke of how one person could fulfill these prophetic expectations. Astronomical numbers. But Jesus fit them all because they were spoken about Him Himself. I love it when people understand. They understand that's what it meant. You see, the light dawns in their eyes. I've told this story before to people, but I I remember it was one of the most exciting things I ever experienced. It was during a, a regular chapel time with the Medicine Hat Tigers. If you ever know a hockey team, you have a team of two dozen uh, boys between 16 and 20. Normally, you might have one or two believers, kids that come from a Christian background. And the rest come from wonderful families, sacrificing so much to get their kids to play at that high level and putting them as a priority. But their, 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 their religious upbringing is entirely absent. I had hockey players come to me and say, you know, some of this is vaguely familiar I used to go to Sunday school. My, my family went to church, but when I made my first select team of hockey and we played every weekend, we never set foot in church again. We had to sacrifice that for hockey. And so these kids, some of them had never heard these stories, never put it all together. And I was speaking at Easter time about Jesus' sacrifice and how God gave us pictures to help us understand it. I told them the story of the Passover in Egypt, the angel of death, the shedding of the spotless lamb's blood put on the doorpost, and how it became a holiday and they remembered God's deliverance from their slavery in Egypt because of the shed blood of the lamb, and how they would sacrifice lambs year after year, and those special lambs, the very best, raised on the hills outside of Bethlehem, would be taken to Jerusalem, and on that Friday before the Passover holiday the next day, those lambs would be slain, the perfect ones. And then John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus, as an adult, a sinless, spotless Lamb, a sinless adult man, fully God and fully human, at the moment those lambs are bleeding out their life's blood on the Temple Mount for the Passover, Jesus was bleeding His life's blood. A short walk away, on Golgotha, the Lamb of God. It all fit. (laughs) And I've never seen anything like it. Their mouths hung open. And one of them spoke for everybody else. They said, why has nobody ever told me this before? They said, this is incredible. They asked me, have you told anyone else about this? (laughs) And I said, well, yeah, it's kind of what we do every Sunday. But they were amazed. It was like a light had come on over their heads. 
and they understood. They wanted more to know more. And so that was the year that the movie The Passion of the Christ came out. We know what that was like. Rough movie. I took them to it. And hockey players saw it with different eyes. They said, man, that Jesus. He would have been a good hockey player because he could play through the pain. You see what he did for his greater goal? His love for us? And they would get up in the movie. In the movie, if you know the movie, it's a very Catholic movie. And it was full of, the theaters full of nuns, the sisters with their rosaries praying throughout the movie. It was very meaningful to them. And we had this team of hockey players getting up on their seats and turning around talking in outside voices to me above the sound of the movie to ask questions about it. And it was just, I'm sure nobody got anything out of the movie except those hockey players. They were so excited. It was just seeds planted. Understanding. And now years later, I'm baptizing them. And hearing how more and more of them are coming to faith. It's a wonderful thing when we understand. And friends, this Christmas, use the Christmas story. Something that's so familiar to share with your friends who don't yet know Christ. Because that's what it's there for. As it says in John chapter 20, near the end of the Gospel of John, that's what the Bible's there for. That's what John wrote the book for. He said, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. It's there to shine light and help people understand and help them to believe. And the Christmas story, the story of the Incarnation, is part of the greater Gospel story. Use it. Because God's Word is there for us to understand and to study and to learn and to grow. The Word of God, as we just saw, will save you if you don't know Jesus as your Savior. And that same Word, once you become a child of God, will grow you to be more like Jesus. The familiar passage, Paul speaking to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We need to continue to study God's Word. Continue to find light and understanding from it to be equipped for the wonderful lives that God has for us to live. The works of grace and love in this hurting world that need it so much. The lights of Christmas. Well, the first light we needed was the light of understanding for the dawn to rise. Let's pray together. And as I pray, I'll invite the worship team to bring our closing song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Christmas story. Lord, we love the story of the, the manger, the stable, no room at the inn, shepherds and angels, wise men from the east. And yet, Lord, we wouldn't understand a thing about it if the roots weren't deep. If it wasn't revealed to us through Your prophets that this was part of Your salvation plan to bring a King and a Messiah like no other, the Anointed One, the Lamb of God, fully God and fully human, to be our peace, to take away the sin of the world. 
Lord, that's the good news of Christmas. And may that light of understanding of Your Word, which is only brought to our hearts through Your Holy Spirit, Lord, as You illuminate us, I pray that You would continue to do that this season and help us to shine that light and share that good news in the lives of those who need to hear it. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.